0: of the lord and my spirit exalts in God myself Welcome to Magnificat Proclaims, presented to you by Magnificat, a ministry to Catholic women. We are delighted that you have joined us. I'm Donna Ross, your host for today's program. This Magnificat Proclaims series features Catholic Christian women who have shared their testimony at one of the many Magnificat chapters hosting quarterly meals around the world. We trust that these testimonies will help each of us come to better understand that we are truly children of God, made in His image and likeness. I'm delighted to be able to introduce to you today Elizabeth Ficocelli. Elizabeth was born in New York where she was baptized and confirmed in the Lutheran faith. By adolescence, she grew dissatisfied with the lack of answers to her questions about certain beliefs. Once Elizabeth entered the Catholic Church in 1983, she immersed herself in reading everything she could about her new faith. She began with supernatural phenomena, such as Eucharistic miracles, stigmata, and apparitions, then progressed to church history, the saints, and apologetics, the defense of the faith. The more she read, the more reasons Elizabeth found to love the Catholic faith. Elizabeth resides with her husband and four boys in Ohio, where their Catholic faith remains the center of their family life. She has been a guest on the EWTN television talk shows for Marcus Grodi, F. Benkovic, And Father Benedict Rochelle and Doug Keck. It is my privilege once again to introduce to you Elizabeth Ficacelli.
1: Good morning. I really thank you all, first of all, for inviting me to come up from Columbus and talk about my story. I am a Catholic convert. Uh, my life is a continual conversion. Um, I was baptized and uh, confirmed in the Lutheran faith. And to really tell you my story, I have to go back to the beginning, and actually even a little before my beginning, and start with my parents. My parents uh, were born and raised in Bronx, New York, in the 1940s. And at that time, The Bronx was a very segregated place. People of all kinds of backgrounds were living there, but segregated. The Irish were on one block. The Jews were over here. The Italians were over here. And people, for the most part, didn't really have a lot to do with people who looked different, who sounded different than they did. My parents were both of German descent, and they're both Protestant. My uh, mother was Lutheran, and she taught Sunday school as a young person. My father was Episcopal, and he was even an altar server in his church. And when they met, their parents decided, that's close enough, you know, German, Protestant, and they got the thumbs up to go ahead and get married. Uh, They moved to Long Island where they would raise five children, and I'm the middle of those five children. They didn't pursue the Lutheran faith over the Episcopal faith because either one of them were particularly fervent in their faith, but at the time that was the thing to do, you follow the mother's faith. And so that's what they did, and they got very involved in their Lutheran church, uh, became very active um, members, they dearly loved their pastor, the pastor is a very important person because he's like the main show, okay, in the Protestant faith, Uh, whereas we have Jesus in the Eucharist as our main show, of course. Um, Eventually the pastor retired, and a new pastor came in, and he was very young and very different, different style, and my parents didn't like this new, new pastor. And my parents stopped going to church. They continued to have us baptized and send us to Sunday school, but they themselves stayed at home. I would say that I'm not really raised in the Lutheran faith. More accurate, I really was raised in a secular mindset. And I say that because we were sort of outsourced to go get our religious background. We as a family did not pray together. Um, I found out later my parents said they did pray. I never saw my parents pray. Uh, We had no religious articles on the walls of our home, any crosses, anything that would indicate we were Christian of any sort. It was a completely secular environment. Christmas was about Santa and presents. Easter was about chocolate rabbits and eggs, and nothing really to do with church. And this was the environment I was raised in. Now, saying all that, um, I had a sort of different experience than the rest of my siblings. For whatever reason, it only can be the grace of God. I've always known since I was a child that God existed. And not only did God exist, but he loved me, and he knew me, and he wanted to be involved in my life. I knew this as the smallest child that I can remember. And I would talk to God at night. I'd pray to him every night. And our family, like so many American families, had dysfunction in it. We had alcoholism in our family growing up. And so there were times of sadness in my, in my childhood, and I can remember that. They weren't all sad, but many times of sadness. I had a couple of things that happened to me, and they happened right about the same age as about eight years old, two profound things that would definitely put me on a course of what brings me today to this podium. The first was um, a particular day that I was very, very sad and angry and upset about whatever was going on in my family. I can't even remember the details of that, but I do remember vividly standing in my bedroom as an eight-year-old crying and talking to God about how distraught I was and how I wanted out of that, not only that family, but I wanted out. Of existence. I wanted to go with God. I mean, just take me, Lord, because it's got to be better where you are, you know, than where I was. And what I was doing, which I didn't know at the time, was I was really praying with the heart, you know, that expression. And, um, but I didn't know I was praying with the heart because I'd never really been told how to pray. I mean, I can't remember learning that in Sunday school. But this is what I was doing at the time. And as I was praying this very distraught prayer to God, I heard a response. And the response said, I have a special mission for you. And when I heard this response, I immediately heard the word special mission, and I shot back. You mean like I'm going to be another Mary? And it's very interesting, and there was no response. But I want to reflect on that conversation, because it has a lot of meaning. First of all, the fact that I got a response from God was um, quite striking, because I had never heard anything from God before. I was never told, maybe God talks to you back, I don't know. The way it came to me, this, this voice, was not like a talking voice, like if one of you were to talk to me, that I hear with my ears. It wasn't a thinking voice, like you think thoughts in your head. If I had to describe this, and maybe some of you had this experience, I would say this voice came in sideways into my heart, okay? In a way I'd never experienced, it was completely unfamiliar, and yet at the same time, it was completely familiar because as an eight-year-old I asked a question right back it wasn't like I turned around and said who was that I wasn't scared I wasn't upset by this Um, so that's the first striking thing but even more striking to me is why on earth would I ask the question you mean I'm gonna be like another Mary because you have to remember I am an eight-year-old Protestant marginal Protestant you know an eight-year-old secular kid and I have no relationship with Mary you know all Mary was to me was we had one religious article in our house that was brought out at Christmas time. It was a manger, a wooden manger with all the figures. And Mary was one of the little figures. And when that manger came out, my sisters and I played with it like a dollhouse. And we busted all the pieces. I mean, it was not reverent. It wasn't. So she was a little figure in a manger. And that's about the extent of what Mary was to me as a child. So why I asked that question was rather mysterious. Now I'm going to come back to that story because it has fulfillment in my adult life. But I think the other thing about that, I have a special mission for you, was even though I didn't know what that mission was, that took my focus off being sad about my family. That put me on a good path. See, we all have mission. Every single one of us in this room. All our children have missions. And all we need to do as parents is tell our children, you all have a special mission, God has picked it for you, and all you need to do is spend time in prayer to find out what your mission is. The other thing that happened to me, right about the same time, eight years old, I was walking to school, and I'm going to a public school, and I found on the sidewalk a little medal. And I had enough Catholic friends uh, to know that this was a Catholic medal. And on the front of that medal was a woman with a veil, and she had in her arms a cross and a bouquet of flowers. And I assumed this must be Mary, because I thought every Catholic medal had Mary on it. I didn't know there was any other person that could be on a medal. And I turned the the medal over, and there was a very mysterious inscription on the back. It said, after my death, I will let fall a shower of roses. So as an eight-year-old, I'm thinking, now I don't remember any Bible story about Mary and roses falling from the sky. I was, just didn't know, but it seemed very mysterious. But what mostly caught my eye about this medal was that it had really shiny little things on it, and I thought, oh, I found a fortune. I found diamonds or something. So I brought the medal home to my mother that day after school, and this was rather miraculous because my mother looked at the medal and said, no, it's not really anything valuable, but she said, but you can keep it if you'd like. Now I say that's miraculous because my parents, in that Bronx mindset, did not like the Catholic Church. Okay? Not only were they different, they had some personal hurts with the church. One of their biggest was they had wanted to be the best man and maid of honor for some friends of theirs who got married in the Catholic Church, but of course they could not do that because they were Protestant and my parents didn't understand that and they got very hurt by that, so that was a big hurt. And they used to complain about the biggest families in the neighborhood were the Catholics and they were overpopulating the world and taking everything over and yada, yada, yada. So, you know, I was hearing that as a kid, so I I did hear the the prejudice growing up. So for my mother to say I could keep that medal, that was a miracle. And I thought, I heard that. I said, oh, I can keep this. It was like forbidden, but I could keep it. So I put it in my jewelry box and there it would stay. But I'm gonna come back to that story because that story also has fulfillment in my adult life. Another kind of interesting thing that was happening pretty much the same time is in our town, uh, we had a, an orphanage, a Catholic orphanage for boys. And it must have been run by the Carmelites. If I think back about the habits these women wore. When we would drive by this orphanage, and we did quite often going to my grandparents' house, I used to look out the window and I used to see these nuns and they had their long veils and their long habits, big rosaries hanging from their belts and it was so mysterious, so interesting to me. And one day, I can very much remember, um, we are driving home and I announced to my mother and my siblings in the car that maybe one day I might want to be a nun. (laughs) Well, that didn't go over real big, you know, my mother, God rest her soul, I love her. But instead of her saying, well dear. You know, you, that's not really practical, because she said, what do you mean you want to be a nun, you know? <laughs> she's probably thinking like horns were sprouting from my head. So I learned, uh-oh, we better not talk about that one anymore. That pushed a button in mom, so we didn't do that. But, but the other intrigue about these nuns, a few summers later, my girlfriends and I, we were very ambitious back then. We decided we were going to put on The Sound of Music. And so we went to the nuns at this Carmelite orphanage and asked them if they had any costumes that we could borrow for our play. And the nuns told us, no, we don't have any costumes you can borrow. So we went back to selling lemonade or whatever we would do to entertain ourselves. But I think there was an attraction for things Catholic, even at that early age in my life. The rest of my childhood was fairly uneventful, except for my uh, Lutheran confirmation, which was at the age of 15. And it was a day that really contrasted all the other days I spent in my Lutheran church. Um, Again, for me, I experienced God in my heart, at home, pretty much in the privacy of my bedroom, okay? I was not experiencing God in my family. I wasn't really experiencing God in Sunday school. I can't even tell you anything I learned in Sunday school. And most of all, I wasn't experiencing God in the church building where we were raised to say, that's God's house, okay? But to me that meant, shh, don't talk, don't run around, that's God's house but I didn't experience God even in this worship service of of the Lutheran faith as I grew up in it. The day of my confirmation um, was very poignant. I can remember I was standing up at the altar with my other classmates, and my parents, and my uh, aunt and uncle, who were my godparents, were standing beside me, and they all were putting their hands on my head, and the pastor came over, put his hand on my head when it was my turn. And I felt a moment of empowerment at that moment. Now, the interesting thing is, in the Lutheran faith, Confirmation is not a sacrament, like it is in our Catholic faith. In our Catholic faith, confirmation is a sacrament. There is a bestowing of grace. The Holy Spirit is there, isn't it? Well, in the Lutheran faith, confirmation is simply a rite of passage. You become an adult member of your church, just like we do, our young people do here as well. But there's no conferring of grace. And yet I felt this moment of power, and I think what I was experiencing probably is the first time being prayed over, because that's a very powerful experience, to be prayed over, no matter what faith you are. Um, But the interesting thing is, uh, I was the one who designed our program, the the program for this confirmation uh, ceremony, and I still have a copy of it, and I pulled it out not too long ago, and and there I had, in old English letters, good Lutheran letters, confirmation, I had a nice big cross. And guess what I had above the cross? Was a dove. Three doves and these rays coming down, like the Holy Spirit coming down. Now, I don't know theologically where I got that, because that's not what our Lutheran church teaches, but again, maybe God was giving me some kind of foreshadowing of what my Catholic confirmation would be eventually. And then um, I became the only person in my family still going to church. And so it was a little bit lonely being the only person in my family there. The church is half empty, I, I just didn't have a sense of community or belonging, and pretty soon high school life got more interesting, and I stopped going to church. And this is something that happens to our young people. High school and college age is the age they most drop off. And so I did. I let social life come. And, and then I went to the University of Bridgeport in Connecticut. And what they proposed to do with us Protestant students is, first of all, a female minister came into the cafeteria where we were all seated. And for I'd never experienced a female minister, so that was a real turnoff to me right from the get-go. And she was handing out these little flyers, and what they proposed is that every week they would bust the Protestant students downtown Bridgeport. One week we would go to a Lutheran church, the next week a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church. And if you're familiar with Protestant churches, they are very different, okay? And that idea of being bust with this female minister to all these strange churches, mm that wasn't for me. So I didn't do anything. Didn't do anything. So year two rolled by. By the time I became a junior in college, I think God got sick and tired of sitting in the back burner of my life. And so he intervened by sending someone very important into my life, and it was a young man named Mark, who would eventually become my husband. And Mark was a cradle Catholic. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, okay, this is going to be trouble. You know, I'm dating a cradle Catholic here. And now Mark was very quiet about his faith. He didn't talk very much about it. But I did notice that every Sunday night, he would go, across from us was the little Newman Center where the Catholic students would gather. And I noticed every Sunday night he was going over there, so I thought, hmm, okay. And one day he invited me to go. So I went in, and it was quite an experience to go to this Mass. First of all, it was a very small room, and it was very informal. There couldn't have been more than 15, 20 kids there. The priest is up there with long hair and sandals. There was very little music, if someone could play guitar they got up and added a little to the music, but no pomp, no circumstance, not like I was used to in the Lutheran Church. And yet, two things really struck me in this first Mass. First of all, I sensed this community among the people who were there. And it's not because I knew these kids, there might have been one or two I recognized from my dorm, but these kids were coming from all over the campus, so I didn't know them personally. But I watched them and there was a community that was going on that I didn't experience in my Lutheran church, something very appealing. But even more striking was when that priest held up that little white wafer and said, this is my body, all of a sudden I knew and I recognized that's Jesus. And I I remember saying to myself, that's where you've been hiding, you know, because I didn't experience him in my Lutheran worship. And so it wasn't like anyone had to do this big theological discussion or you know, have me read a bunch of books to teach me about the theology of Jesus and the Eucharist, I, I must have had what they call the Emmaus experience, not a Damascus experience where I'm knocked off my horse, you know, thunderbolt and lightning, a very quiet but very assured and deep sense of knowing this is Jesus in the Eucharist, and that was a very powerful moment for me. And time is going on, and I'm falling more in love with this man, Mark, and more, more in love with the Catholic Mass, but the idea, because we we're talking about marriage by this point, The idea of becoming Catholic, that was still very intimidating to me. I realized I still had some of those lingering prejudiced attitudes that my parents had instilled on us. And so that just didn't seem right. And I remember asking Mark, well, why don't we compromise? Why don't we pick another religion out of a hat? And I wasn't going for like Buddhism or anything. I was sticking in the Christian realm. But you know what? Mark didn't want to do that. He was reluctant. And I started to realize his ties are deeper than I thought. He was quiet about his Catholicism, but he he had a deep, deep commitment there. And I remember one break, I went home back to to Long Island, and I made a a meeting with my associate pastor from my Lutheran church. And I sat down with him. I said, look, where does our church stand on, like, abortion? Or what does our church believe about this and this? And his answers were so wishy-washy. You know, I was so like, but wait a minute, the Catholic Church says this, this, and this. And he finally said to me, look, Elizabeth, he said, the Catholic Church, it's a church with a lot of rules. And if you want a lot of rules in your life, you know, maybe that is the one for you. I think he could sense that I was being drawn. And I remember leaving that meeting, and I was unsatisfied with his answers. And I said, you know, I want to believe. I want to sit in a church where the person here and the person here in the pew, they believe what I believe. And so it was really drawing me to the Catholic faith. And so... I realized two things in this process. I realized, if I'm going to get married, I really want to share my faith with my husband. I I could not see me going into a marriage and having two separate faiths. That had no appeal to me. And second, I wanted to belong to a faith where I experienced God in the liturgy, in, in the worship. And for me, all the signs were pointing to Rome. I mean, it was the Catholic Church. And so I made the decision to go through RCIA in 1983. Um, but back then, I, I was out of school. I was uh, working and living in Manhattan. I was right down the street from St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, and I began taking classes. I probably took them at my lunch hour, uh, probably for about 16 weeks. It was my RCIA program. And the day I came into the church, Mark was my sponsor, and it was in the back of St. Patrick's Cathedral is a chapel called St. Mary's Chapel. Now, any relevance to Mary was going over my head at the time because I still had a very nominal experience of Mary. But, but I came into the church in this chapel, very small group, very informal. Mark's whole family was there. Um, I had not told my family at this point that I had entered the Catholic Church. I didn't think they would handle it real well. And so I have a picture from that day, and looming behind us is the Blessed Mother, big statue. Again, this all went over my head. I had no idea she had anything to do with that day. Now, I did tell my parents shortly after that I had entered the Catholic Church, They weren't real happy about that, but by now I am 23 years old. I'm engaged to this man um, who I'd been dating for a number of years, and so they knew I was serious. They knew as an adult it was my life, and and so they didn't understand it, but they accepted it, and I would say that my decision to uh, leave the Lutheran faith or the secular faith I was growing up with and enter the Catholic Church definitely put a division between my family and I, my biological family. It's not that they ostracize me intentionally, it's not that they punish me, um, because none of, they're all still s- stuck in secularism. There's very few of them that have any faith at all, uh, one sister who does, but, um, but it just became a division. It's something we don't share in common. And so when I hear that scripture reading about you know, Jesus coming not to unify but to divide, you know, mother and, against daughter-in-law and father against son, You know, I I kind of take that one personally because I've experienced that. It has caused division, and yet in saying all that, it certainly has been the best decision that I've ever made, uh, by far. So, 1983, I become Catholic. And now I realize I've entered this church through my heart. God has led me here with different signs. This is where I belong. But now I realize I have to learn intellectually about what I have done. And our church is a church with 2,000 years of history, 4,000 more years of Jewish ancestry, and so there's a lot to learn about this faith. And because I was a voracious reader, I just poured myself into reading everything about the Catholic faith I could. And the first subject I started with was um, the wonders and miracles of the Catholic faith. Things like Sharon was mentioning Eucharistic miracles and stigmata, incorrupt bodies, apparitions, weeping statues. But this attracted me because we had never had anything like that in our Lutheran faith. So I was really captured by that young 23-year-old. That was great. But quickly I moved on to reading about the saints, and church history, and papal encyclicals, and apologetics, the defense and explanation of our faith. And, you know, to this day, I continue to read. I'll never live long enough to read everything I want about our faith. Hopefully there's going to be a heavenly library when we get to heaven one day, and we'll just be infused with all of this. Um, But I read everything I could. And it was when I was reading about the saints is when I discovered the correct identity of the mysterious woman on my medal that still sat in my jewelry box all these years later. And it wasn't the Blessed Mother. It was Saint Therese of Lisieux, who had said, after my death, I will let fall a shower of roses. So I thought, St. Therese of Lisieux, you know, that's kind of interesting. So it led me to read her book, Story of a Soul, and I instantly fell in love with her like everybody does who reads that book, and, and she's such an accessible, approachable saint, and I just just fell in love with her. And I realized, I, I believe that she had been sent into my life when I was eight to lead me, to guide me, to be sort of a guardian of me, and certainly she would become very central to the writing ministry that would happen in in a few years down the road from the time of that story. About six years later, I had another important experience in my faith journey that would propel me forward, and it was my first experience of pilgrimage. And we went uh, in 1989 to a place that you're probably familiar with, Medjugorje. And it was my one and only time going to Medjugorje, but it was my first experience of pilgrimage. This was my first experience of exactly what I had gotten myself into by becoming Catholic, to see what a global, universal faith we belong to. People coming from all over the world to worship together, to sing, to praise, to believe the same thing in different languages. That was mind-boggling. I mean, absolutely mind-boggling. You know, the interesting thing is, because apparitions were one of the first things I read about as a new Catholic, I was very open to the idea that apparitions could be happening in our day. You know, of course, this is all under church investigation. But, but say this is something that is true happening. Um, because I thought, you know, when, when God sought fit to send his mother at Fatima or Lourdes, for instance, those were times of turbulence. And don't we live in a time of turbulence? Why wouldn't he continue sending his mother now more than ever? So I was very predisposed with an openness to the idea of apparitions. And so going to Medjugorje made a lot of sense. If something is happening in my lifetime, I should go and experience that as a new Catholic. So that was important. But there were three, I would say, life-changing things that happened to me as a result of that one pilgrimage. The, the messages can be boiled down in five simple things. What Our Lady is calling us to do is pray daily with the heart, okay? Fasting weekly, if possible, on bread and water. Um, frequent Eucharist, not just on Sundays, but if we can during the week. Daily scripture, reading scripture daily. And confession, monthly confession. Now whether we believe in Medjugorje or not, and it's all our own personal opinion, there's no problem, we have to admit that if we did those five things, we would all be better Catholics. We would all have a better relationship with God. They're all good things. It's like telling our kids, eat your vitamins, okay? That's gonna be good for them. And so these things are very good. So the fruits of these apparitions, or this experience of pilgrimage, propelled me forward and I was beginning to incorporate all of that in my life, the prayer, you know, more frequent reception of the sacraments and so forth. That was very important. Another very important thing that happened to me is that no longer was my personal faith journey the key anymore. I had a fervent desire to bring God to other people. All of a sudden, everyone else's faith became important to me. That had not been the case before. I was too busy learning about my new faith, just trying to be a good Catholic, obedient Catholic. But I came out of that pilgrimage experience with a desire to bring God to others. And that I really think Therese is involved in that too, because she so wanted to bring all souls to God. Wasn't that her big mission? And so that was really important. But I also had a uh, important miracle that happened to me personally. It happened in the confessional. Um, it would be the first of two confession miracles that uh, I've experienced. And what happened was I had been told that you should really try to make a confession in Medjugorje because it's a very powerful experience. A lot of miracles happen in the confessional. And so I wanted to experience everything there was to experience about Medjugorje, so I said, I'm going. Now it's December and it's freezing cold and this big stone church, St. James, is not heated and so it's very cold. But, and so I get in line, my husband's behind me and his sisters are behind him. And we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. And we're waiting. And it's like people are in there forever. And I'm thinking, you know, is this like this serial killer line or something? You know, don't they have an express line? Because I didn't even have any sins I could think of to confess, you know. And, and the whole confession thing, and I'll get into that shortly, was a whole mystery and stumbling block to me to begin with. I didn't like confession back then. I didn't understand it. And so I'm wondering, what is taking people so long? You know, and literally hours are rolling by, and we don't seem to be moving very far. There's only about three people in front of me. My husband and my sisters-in-law, they decide, we're out of here. We're freezing. They went back to the guest house. They said, we'll meet you back. And so I finally asked the guy behind me, I said, do you know why this line's taking so long? And he said, oh, yes. He said, the priest in there, Father Philip Pavich, he has a gift. He uh, uh, has a gift of asking you just a few questions and getting right at the heart of your matter. And I'm thinking, what's the heart of my matter? I didn't even think I had any matter to talk about, you know? (laughs) So I'm getting a little nervous, but I'm determined. I'm going to make this confession, but I'm looking at that clock, and Gee, I hope you hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Finally, it's my turn. I almost left the line because we're getting darn close to that apparition, but I got in there and I'm startled by what I see. It's this priest, he looks like Padre Pio. He he had spent 12 years in Jerusalem before he came to Medjugorje, so he looked like a rabbi more than the priest. This big salt and pepper beard, black, like wrapped in black or something. Anyway, I get in there and I'm like trying to, we're going to make this quick, okay? And I said, oh, you know, Father, I, uh, I'm distracted in my prayer. I, I, you know, I'm just you know, coming up with anything. He says to me, are you married? And I said, yes, I'm married. And he said, how long? And I said, five years. And he said, do you have any children? And I said, um, no. And he looked at me and I said, but we've been doing natural family planning all those five years. Because I figured maybe he was thinking I was doing that contraception thing. wasn't going to get me on that one. And he's just looking at me, okay? Three questions, all he's doing is looking at me. And I said, well, we're planning to have kids, but we want to travel a little bit and we wanted to kind of get used to each other. And we, he said to me, you're not postponing, you're controlling and you're keeping God out of a very important part of your life. That's a pagan attitude. And I'm sitting there like, <laughs> and he said, and he just went on and on and on. So he got to the heart of my matter. I did not want to hear about the heart of my matter. I was here to see an apparition or experience an apparition I didn't want to be in this confessional to begin with and I could not believe that he was reading me the riot act for not being open to life I didn't want to hear that at the time and I'm starting to cry because I don't know what to say or what to do and he's yelling at me practically and telling me go go and get pregnant he's telling me and I just I never experienced a priest like this before and I finally um, and I'm freezing because I've been in the cold church for three hours at that moment I felt um, what I thought happened is maybe they opened the confessional next to me because I felt like a switch go on and like a rush of warmth, and almost like you know, when you turn on fluorescent lights and there's like a hum, you know, the humming of light. I thought that's what happened. And at the moment, I happened to look down at my watch, and it was 5.40, the time of the apparitions. And I'm thinking, all I'm thinking about the time is, i got to get out of here, I'm missing something. So whatever I said to him, I get out of the confessional, I stumble out of the confessional, I find my way back into the main part of the church, I see my husband, and I sit down next to him, and I mean, I'm you know tears, he looks at me like, what happened to you, you know? And I'm just, I'm sobbing, I'm sobbing and sobbing, he's like, okay, what's happening? Finally, I take him out into the courtyard, and I tell him what happened in the confessional. And he's like, what? And he's ready to go pop that priest. He is so upset. How could he ever say that to you? He's mad. I'm mad. I'm crying. He's crying. And the, the interesting, two interesting things that unfold from that is that as the week unfolded for us, we began to realize that this was absolutely what God had brought us halfway across the the world to say, time to let me in on this part of your life. I want to gift you, and and it it that was one thing. The other thing that someone mentioned to me, oh by the way, if you were in the confessional at the time of apparition, that's a great grace. I was like, oh good, great grace, that's good. At the time, I didn't appreciate it, um, and we came back from that pilgrimage. But eventually, a few months later, we conceived a child. And I have it on my charts. The day we conceived that child was June 25th. But I came back, as I said, with that, from that pilgrimage with that mission to evangelize, okay, to spread God's love to everyone. And I started a prayer, a very simple prayer, every day, I said, day. I'm driving in my car, whatever. And I said, Lord, let me be an instrument of your will. Help me to bring people to you. Help me to set them on fire for you, just like you've done in my life. And Lord, do it any way you want. And that was the really important part of that prayer, because in my heart, I was hoping he'd pick me in my writing, because he'd given me a gift of writing, and I like to write, and I thought this would be perfect. But I really wanted to put him in the driver's seat and do it how he wanted to, if it was going to work. And I did that prayer every day for 10 years. 10 years later, he answers that prayer, and I can remember the day like it was yesterday. I was uh, approaching my 40th birthday, and what I had been doing at that time in my life, we had three beautiful, healthy boys, and I thought... Great. you know. We even prayed a lot about having that third. You know, a new chapter in our life was beginning. I'm 40, I am certainly must be too old for kids at this point. And so what I wanted to do was go back to my writing. I'd been an advertising writer prior to having kids and freelance writing, but I wanted to write a book. I just wanted to write a plain simple children's secular book. And so I was uh, going to a few conferences. I'm writing all these very clever little kids' manuscripts, sending them out and getting one rejection after another, after another. No, no, no thank you, no, no. Interesting, but no. Until one day I had decided, I'm going to write a magazine article, completely switching gears. I'm going to write a story about St. Therese and how she intervened in my life with the sign of a flower. Not only my life, but the life of my son. And this article, by the way, is uh, it's called A Rose by Another Name. Well, this particular day, I'm laying on my couch and I'm feeling lousy. I've got stomach cramps and I have a headache that feels like more than a migraine, it feels like a brain tumor. I mean, it was that bad. And I'm laying on the couch and I'm thinking to myself, either I have a brain tumor or I'm pregnant again. But as most of you who are mothers know, you sort of know when you're pregnant, I was pregnant. And it wasn't confirmed yet, but I was pretty sure. And I'm laying on the couch and in the midst of all of this, my husband comes running in with the mail. Honey, honey, you won't believe this. You're published. Catholic Parent Magazine just wrote you. They want your article. And I'm reading this letter and I'm thinking, I can't believe it. I never saw the word yes. This was the launch and I realized that God was probably saying to me, I don't want you writing that other children's secular stuff right now. I want you to be a Catholic writer. And so this was the path I'd followed. And who was at the heart of this was St. Therese and her story of intercession. And so it was confirming to me that this is how this ministry would start. And not only was she the subject of my first article, she would be the subject of my first adult book, Shower of Heavenly Roses. Because when this article came out, I had people contact me and say, oh, I loved your story. It was so beautiful. But let me tell you about my story. When I prayed for her intercession and what she sent me, and, and I started collecting all these stories, and I realized it would make a great book. And that's how that book came. So here was Therese in the heart of this writing ministry, in the heart of all of it. And so that was uh, very beautiful and very powerful as well. Now, I said I had that first uh, confession miracle over in Medjugorje. I had another second and probably even more powerful um, confession miracle here in the United States. It was about six years or seven years after Medjugorje. Uh, At the time we had our first child, he was about four at the time, and we had just had our second baby. And this was the baby that never, ever slept. At least any time I was trying to sleep, he never slept. And if you have children like that, you could probably remember, seriously, what being sleep-deprived over a period of time. It, it, it makes you come unglued, literally, and it did for me. I couldn't function. And not only that, you know, I'm nursing these kids, so, you know, or the one child, and you know, every two hours anyway. So I'm just spent, and one day, I completely became unglued. And, I, and, and it's humbling and humiliating for me to talk about it, but it's important to the story, and that's why I do share it. And this also is in an article on my website. But this one particular morning, I don't know what my four-year-old did, didn't get ready in time for preschool or whatever stupid little, you know, nonsensical thing. And I just, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And you know that expression, see red? For about 10 seconds, I saw red. And I had no control over what I was doing. Or, or, and I, I, I just raged against my four-year-old and I felt so profoundly upset that I could have hurt this child who had nothing to do with any of my problem. And I was devastated. And I knew I had to go to the confession. I had to make a confession. Well, I have to tell you that as a Catholic convert, even you know seven or eight years into my Catholicism, the confessional was my biggest stumbling block. You know? Some people say it's Mary. Well, God allowed me to accept Mary. She wasn't a stumbling block. She was still an enigma, but she wasn't a block. And a lot of um, converts are stumbling over Jesus in the Eucharist. Well, God took that away from me as well. wasn't a stumbling block. Confession, now that was another matter, OK? I dreaded confession. I didn't for the longest time I didn't understand why do we have to go into that little dark closet with this strange man with a collar around his neck and talk about really humiliating things. You know, I didn't even like to talk about humiliating things with like my husband. You know what I mean? I just I didn't like to think bad things about myself. You know, I tried to sweep those under the carpet. I hated it. I hated it so much that I used to go to different parishes than my own because I was sure that my priest had a little black book that he kept <laughs> log of all our sins, my sins and your sins. I believe that he probably talked about it over coffee time with his fellow priests, maybe even told other parishioners about it. You know, I didn't get it. I didn't get the grace. I didn't get it was Jesus that we experienced in the confessional. It completely went over my head. And so I was just completely not getting it. I would go twice a year, because I wanted to be a good, obedient Catholic. But it was a foot-dragging, humiliating experience, and I never felt better after it. That was my experience of confession for about the first seven, eight years of Catholicism. Well, I think God wanted to teach me something about that. And what happened in this particular time, right before I had that raging experience against my poor little four-year-old, Things were actually going very well in my life, and I had just read about uh, a Polish nun named, at the time, Sister Faustina. She's now, of course, Saint Faustina, and the Divine Mercy. And I fell in love with her as well in reading her, uh, you know, Divine Mercy in My Soul, her biography and uh, her journal. And and I was all excited about teaching this whole Divine Mercy message uh, to my friends in my scripture group. And I was on fire about this message. And I was doing the novena. I was preparing for the big confession. Everything was going wonderfully. It's Lent. I mean, beautiful. And then this thing happens in my life. So I decide as an added penance, I'm going to go to my parish, and I'm going to go to my pastor. And I went in there, and I blubbered like an idiot, just crying and and telling him this horrible thing that I did to a child that God had entrusted me with. And he listened. Now, he did exactly what a priest does. He listens. He gives me advice, and then he gives me God's absolution, okay? Now, I'm sitting in that chair. I'm feeling like the weight of the world is on my shoulders. I am crushed. I am so upset. I couldn't get out of that chair. I mean, I could not literally lift myself off that chair, because see, I was still stuck in unforgiveness, which was one of my problems with confession. I never forgave myself. How can I make room for God's forgiveness? But I couldn't. I just I didn't forgive myself. I thought, this is the worst. I felt like Judas. Okay, I felt such a betrayer. But finally, I realized I got to leave the confessional, because there's people out there, and there's nothing that happens after absolution. You got to go, you know? So I get up and this is when the miracle happened. I reach for the doorknob and I was going through the door back into the church when it felt like someone had taken a bucket of water and placed it over the door jamb, and that this water splashed down at me the moment I walked through that threshold. And in an instant, I went from feeling like the weight of the world on my shoulders to being instantly light, like, like I was floating. I remember even looking at my feet like was I floating. I was filled with peace and lightness in a split second, you know? And I realized that God was showing me something. See, he was showing me all about what Faustina was saying about my oceans of my mercy are going to pour out on you, how much he wants to give us his mercy. He was making it come alive for me, and it was such a turning point in my life because I finally got it. I finally realized, you know, he knew how contrite I was. He knew how brokenhearted I was, that I really didn't want to do this ever again, okay? I was exactly where we want to be in confession, emotionally. And he wanted to give me that gift. Now, I realize that that is what happens every time I come out of confession, you come out of confession. We may not experience it in that tangible, water washing way, and I've never experienced it since that one time, but I know that I'm washed clean, just like each of you are washed clean. And it really not only helped me uh, with a, a confession no longer being an obstacle, it set me on fire. And, and confession is something I do, I'm often asked to speak about with little kids when they're making their first confession, to adults, um, And in my article that came out, Confessions of a Catholic Convert, it's on my website, that I relate this whole story, I had someone call me shortly after saying, you know, I read your article and I haven't been to confession in 20 years, but I'm going back. And I thought, how wonderful that God could take a very dark experience in my life and use it with his grace to bring light and healing to others. I spoke at Perry, Ohio last year at a women's retreat. They asked me to speak on divine mercy and confession. And it was uh, during Lent, it was perfect. And I did that, and after we had a Mass, and um, it turned out there were so many women online for confession that day. This is all through the grace of God. I don't say this to blow my horn. This is the spirit working. They had to bring in the retired bishop to hear all the confessions. And as I was leaving the Mass that day, the Polish priest, he was so adorable. He was so so cute. He grabbed my arm, and he was like a kid on Christmas morning, and he said, Elizabeth, all these confessions. He said, one of the women who came in hasn't been to confession in 40 years. You know, it's so beautiful. So I know there's a hunger for it. And so just consider this your open invitation if you haven't been to confession in a while. Oh, Jesus is waiting there with his arms open. And it is such a gift in our faith and so beautiful. So I definitely encourage you um, to definitely take part in that. Now, if you remember my story about I have a mission when I was eight, this has a very interesting fulfillment. Um, It was a, a, a few years ago. My youngest at the time, he's 10 now, but he was about three, so about seven years ago. And I had gone on a retreat, a women's retreat uh, uh, that our parish had put on. And the two women leading the retreat asked us, go back in your mind and think about your first recollection of God. Okay? And immediately this conversation that I had when I was eight with God came to my mind. Now, it's not like I've ever forgotten this conversation because it's been etched in my heart in a way that, you know, is just permanent there. I'll, I'll never forget it. But this retreat made me go back and visit it in a new way and realize what a tremendous grace I had received at eight that God would tell me I had a mission. And I was certainly thinking at this adult part in my life, well, certainly my mission involves being a wife and mother of four, um, but I truly believe my writing and my speaking is part of my mission. And this is what God was calling me for. This is why he wanted to preserve me and to bring me into this. And so that was um, beautiful, and I was just came out of that retreat just even more grateful that God would have done this to me as a child. And a couple days later, I'm at morning Mass, and I'm in the back and sitting with my three-year-old on my lap, and a priest was doing some homily that it triggered that memory again. And I'm sitting in Mass that day, again, seven years ago, and I'm thinking about that conversation. I have a special mission for you. And this and, and smile was coming to my face that day because I'm thinking, I asked the creator of the universe if I was going to be another blessed mother, okay? (laughs) And as I'm thinking of this thought, all of a sudden, I hear God respond. 37 years later, you know, when I asked him, am I going to be another blessed mother? He said, no, you're going to glorify my mother. It took 37 years to hear the answer to that. And and it's really interesting how I responded to that voice as an adult versus a child. When I was a child, that voice was perfectly, you know, I was right there engaged, right back interested. As an adult, I just broke down in tears. I was so overwhelmed to hear that voice again. And um, it was just so beautiful, but uh, just kind of interesting comparison when you're a child versus when you're adult and God is doing these beautiful uh, graces in your life. Um, and I thought at the time, you know, my writing ministry, I had written a book on Medjugorje, but little did I know about six months after that experience, I'd be called on to write a book on lords, and that there'd be many, many more situations that often involve the Blessed Mother. And so I can't tell you why today that me as a nominal Protestant, you know, secular child would be singled out of a family for the purpose of bringing people to God and his mother. But I am humbled by the experience and certainly um, you know, following this door. And, and it's been an amazing journey these last 10 years because that first article about Therese came out in 2000. So we're in 2010 right now. So in 10 years time, God has seen fit to open so many doors that I have 10 books in a publication. I've got four more in various stages of production that will be out in the next year or so. And in these last two years, I, again, another conversion experience is happening. You know, I've, I always think, I'm a pretty good Catholic, I'm pre- living a pretty good life, trying to do a good job with my kids, out there writing and speaking, but God was still squeezing my husband and I, still wanting, you know, more, more wine from the wine press. And these last two years, we've really had to fall back on those words of St. Sa- uh, Faustina, Jesus, I trust in you. Um, He has asked for our trust in some of the most core issues of our life these last two years. And maybe he's doing it in in your lives as well, because as I talk about this, people are coming forward telling me it's similar. Um, He taught us how to tie that full 10%. We used to rationalize, we volunteer, we do so many ministries, you know, 5% is good enough. But he has encouraged us, and we've taken that leap of faith, and that's been amazing. But the last year and a half has been the trial of unemployment. My husband's been out of work for a year and a half and and we are discerning where is he leading and and is this time that I need to put my ministry aside and go back to work full time? You know, maybe as an advertising writer. So it's a time of great uh, trial, um, great testing, but at the same time, beautiful fruits. We see the fruits of patience. We see the fruits of trust you know, that's that's been yielded from all this. But when I was asked to speak at Magnificat last year um, in Stark County, Ohio, they had asked me if I had a favorite prayer verse, or a prayer or a scripture verse. And at the time, this was be- the beginning of the unemployment ordeal, I kept hearing this prayer on Catholic radio. And it kept catching my ear, but little did I know how really it would become fulfilled in the next year. But it's co- it's an abandonment prayer. It's actually by Thomas Merton. and And it goes like this, and maybe you can relate to this. It says, My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you, and I hope that I have the desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire, and I know that if I do this, you will lead me back by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. And maybe some of you, like I say, especially in this tough economic time, and time of other crisis, can relate to that. And now I'd like to bring my story to close with a a dream I had that I'd like to share with you. And um, it's a way that maybe I can bring my journey to tie in with your journeys. Because, you know, that's the purpose of me coming here for the last hour, that maybe something I've shared today will help you in your spiritual journeys. We're all on this journey together. They're not over yet. And and, and the fact that we're intertwining with our journeys even today is is beautiful. But I had a dream, and maybe some of you have experienced, the, the dream that you wake up when you say, that wasn't a dream. That was way too real way too poignant, way too rich in, in meaning. And this happened to me, um, it happened to me about two days after the death of John Paul II. And Pope John Paul II was very, very special to me. I know he was very special to a lot of people. But he was my pope, okay? I came into the church in 83. He, t- he became pope in 78. So he was the only experience of pope I had ever had. And what a beautiful experience of pope. And I loved him. I, I mean, I just, I, sometimes I'd cry just watching him talk or just seeing him interact with people, the young people. And, And he just—he was like a a true father figure to me. I never had met him, but he—I just loved his what he wrote, how what he said, and I was so bonded to him. And as we all recall, when Pope John Paul II was dying, it was such a public affair. We were all there, you know, spiritually. We were all there, and his whole life was public. And that's I think what was so beautiful. He reflected God. He just radiated God, and that's what drew everyone to him. And I was. I was business traveling at the time, he was dying, I was following it, and just feeling sad. And my greatest remorse was I had never met Pope John Paul II in person. I'd never had the privilege to be in an audience with him, but I wanted to be more than a a person in the crowd. I wanted to come up to the Pope, and I wanted to tell him, you know, so many people just love you and think you're the greatest. Homemakers like me with little kids at home that are teaching Theology of the Body to them and, and your other wonderful, amazing teachings. Um, I just wanted to know how many young people and simple people like me were just so behind him and, and how he'd affected all of us. That's what I wanted. I didn't want to just shake his hand. I wanted to chat with him a little bit and tell him. Anyway, he died. And I was I felt like I'd really lost a member of my family. And it was about two days later, I had gone to bed very, very sad, thinking, I'll never meet him. You know, I'm really sad about that. And that night I had a dream, or that morning, I guess, before you wake up. I had a dream, and I dreamt that I met him. And this dream took place in my, uh, my parish school. Uh, we, we, we go to St. Um, uh, Pius X in Reynoldsburg. And, and I knew it was the lobby of my school because we had a big carpet that says St. Pius X. And what was happening in my life just prior to this dream is I was on an active crusade to try to pray to the Holy Spirit to come down on our parish and really invigorate our people. There was some brokenness going on that people's spirits were getting broken, and all I was doing was trying to pray that the Holy Spirit would descend and unite us as a people, set us on fire, help us to be what God had called us to be, bring joy and life into this particular parish. I'd even bless the perimeter with blessed salt and the whole nine yards. and So that's where I was mentally when I had this dream. Well, here I dreamt that Pope John Paul II had come to our parish. Boy, talking about answering prayers, right? And he's sitting in the lobby. Now, I'm in the corner of the lobby in my dream. We have a a desk in this lobby called the security desk. It's where you, if you come to visit our school, you sign in. I've worked the desk many times, sat there as a volunteer. But in this particular dream, I'm not sitting at the desk. I'm actually sitting on the floor in front of the desk in the corner of this room. And I'm wrapped in a big yellow comforter that I bought the day I went to college, okay, my comforter, my favorite comforter. And I'm sitting on the floor in my dream, and there in this chair was Pope John Paul II, and he looked just like he did in those last days of life, you know, very old, very feeble-looking. And he's sitting, not facing me, he's sitting kind of sideways. I'm in the corner, and he's facing this way. And I'm just thinking, Pope John Paul II has come to our parish Surely our parish is going to be invigorated by this. And as I'm thinking about this, these scouts, these Cub Scouts come marching in, and they all actually genuflect, which is interesting. They genuflect the Pope. You don't usually genuflect a Pope, but they all took a knee. And in the crowd, I saw my third son, Daniel. And then these scouts got up to leave, and Daniel wanted to stay. Now this is one part of the dream that hasn't been fulfilled, so I don't know what the symbolism of this is. Um, But he wanted to stay, and he was telling the adult leader, no, I want to be with the Pope. You know, maybe he has a calling, I don't know. But the adult leader in my dream was able to usher him out finally. So now the lobby is empty, and it's just me and John Paul. And as I'm sitting there, John Paul slowly turns his face toward me. And the moment we lock eyes from across the room, I feel myself being pulled, just drawn, without any effort on my part. I'm being pulled slowly across the room towards this man. And I'm thinking, I'm going to meet the Pope. I'm going to meet the Pope. And just as I'm thinking that, like, comforter gets snagged on something and I'm like (gasps) and I'm trying to pull the comforter you know I'm trying to pull it but wait it's the Pope I have to meet the Pope now I must have gotten free because the next moment I was face to face with John Paul I was so close to this man in my dream that I could feel his breath you know on my face I could feel his body warmth I could even I think feel his heartbeat that's how close I was and I'm looking at his old soft face, you know, and instinctively I reach up and I do the little sign of the cross on his cheek. And right before I can tell him how much he means to me, he says, I love you so much. And with that, I woke up. I'm going to start to cry because I always hear cry when I talk. But I really woke up and I felt such joy because I really felt I had met. John Paul II. You know, and I think, why not? Why not when we're freed of the bonds of death? Why couldn't we visit everyone we want to visit who loves us and we love and are in that time right after death? And I really believe he gave me that message that he loves me. And and the reason I end my talk with that dream is because I think there's a lot of rich symbolism in it. And an interesting aside to the story is we have lost that yellow comforter. It truly has disappeared. None of us know where it is. I mean, it is gone. I'm not going back to my comforter as almost like an added sign that I'm leaving my comfort zone. And certainly speaking for me has been leaving my comfort zone. I'm comfortable writing, but um, I'm going where God's calling. And that's the reflection I want to leave you ladies with today. Is God perhaps somewhere in your life asking you to let go of something that's a security for you? Something that's been comfort for you that maybe it's time to let go of? To go see him face to face and see where he's calling you next, that you too can be these instruments of God to bring him to as many people as come into your circle of influence, because influence, we all have those circles of influence. So I want to leave you with that reflection, something that you can take away. And I thank you all so much again for this invitation for me to come and tell my small story. I'm anxious to hear some of your stories as well. So God bless all of you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: We hope you have been touched by Elizabeth Vicicelli's faith-filled testimony. And for more information or a copy of the broadcast, please write us at Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, 92859. Once again, that's Magnificat Proclaims at P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, 92859. You can also call us toll-free at 800-500-4556, that's 800-500-4556, or 714-744-0336. In addition, if you'd like to know more about this beautiful Magnificat ministry, including a location of a chapter maybe in your area, please call us at 504-828-MARY, that's 504-828-6279. Well, on behalf of Magnificat Proclaims, this is Donna Ross inviting you to join us next time as we present more personal testimonies from our inspirational Catholic speakers. Remember, Magnificat proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you in His peace.